time to begin. You want to have your Bibles open to Revelation chapter 22. I want to read beginning at verse 6. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And he said to me, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. All right. So last week we talked about those three statements, those three repeated statements of Christ as he is quoted here at the end of Revelation 22. Behold, I am coming quickly. Surely I am coming quickly. We talked about the different interpretations, the different ways those words would be understood by those who first heard them, 
the first ones to read the book of Revelation all those years ago and how they, how they would be understood to us today and indeed in every generation. We are, we are one moment, one breath, one blink of the eye away from the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to live in a state of constant readiness, to be prepared at all times, to have our, 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 our lamps filled with oil, and to always be about the Master's business. Tonight, we're going to kind of talk about a couple of other themes of Revelation, and then I hope we will conclude with uh, the topic of what we've learned or what we learn about Jesus through the book of Revelation. But before we do that, I just want to mention a couple of things here about uh, some of the, the different uh, ways that John draws this book to a close, highlighting the different themes, highlighting the different messages. Revelation is, is as we see here right at the very end, there is a, a blessing. As a matter of fact, seven times in the book of Revelation. You know, if it's in the book of Revelation, you know what that number seven it's all over the book, but seven times in the book of Revelation, a blessing is pronounced on those who read or keep or do the words of this book. This is a book that carries a blessing for being read, a blessing for being heard, and a blessing for being acted upon. That's... Um, you know, we, we think of uh, the Beatitudes there in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, the blessed are the poor, the blessed are the meek that Jesus begins his ministry with. And here at the conclusion, we see that theme of blessing continue in particular to the specific words of Revelation and the prophecies that are given in it. And and, you know, I know some believers, some Christians look at Revelation as kind of a, uh, a strange book, not, not a book to really, they're not sure what to do with it, not sure where to, to, to put it. You know, they just kind of know it's there, but they don't really want to spend a lot of time dealing with it. But this blessing, the, 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 the idea that this book itself, independent of all the other words of Scripture, carries a significant and special blessing for those who read it regularly, hear it regularly, and most of all, who obey, who keep, who do what the Word of Revelation tells us to do. And so, as many, uh, while there's many things in the book that we can look at and say, well, that's not a blessing, earthquakes and all that, there is definitely a blessing to us to read it. And that's why Revelation should be part of our regular study, part of our regular devotion, preaching, teaching, and personally. Uh, the more you read it, the more you hear it, and the more you keep it, the more blessing there is in it for you. So we'll go to the next, uh, the next thing he touches on. We've touched on this on, uh, on several occasions. The theme of worship, of right worship. Revelation is a worship manual. Revelation is a book that uh, teaches us both the right way and the wrong way, or shows us 
the right way and the wrong way to worship. And, and the, the central theme of the entire book is uh, that God and God alone is worthy of worship and that all other worship will one day uh, be exposed and be, and be uh, judged and be dealt with. All the false gods, I was thinking about this a little bit this week, um, and I know we've covered this ground a couple of times. I don't want to try your patience on this thing, but you know, we, 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 we look back at ancient history and we sort of uh, smirk and we sort of feel a little smug and superior to those ancient cultures that worshipped trees or rocks or statues or, you know, built temples to, to imaginary uh, gods of the, uh, of the astronomical or astrological realm. And we kind of say, you know, that, that's, that age of paganism and idolatry, that's, that's part of history. That's not how the modern world works. And yet, I can't help but just be uh, just, just on an almost daily basis to see the level of idolatry. Not just, not just talking about other religions. You know, this isn't about specifically uh, you know, Hinduism or, or Islam, or, although that's part of it. But, you know, the, the, the gods of old were really just stand-ins. They were just, they were just fill-ins, placeholders for the, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, the, the, wor- you know, the worship of mammon, the worship of power uh, and, and wealth and influence. And that is so uh, much a part of our modern world, so much a part of really every age of humanity and, and we're, we're not any different on that. We may call it something different. We may, you know, we may not address it in religious terms. But, it, you know, it, you know for, for many people today, uh, you know, the stock market is just as much a religion to them as, as, as Christianity is to us. Uh, to some people today, uh, you know, politics and power is their religion. Uh, and they bow and they worship at the feet of these false gods called politicians. And, and, you know, for others, you know, there's a cult of celebrity. Somebody the other day was trying to tell me about somebody that was so popular now on something called TikTok. And, and I had to stop them. And I said, I don't know what TikTok is. I, I, to this day, I still don't know what that means. To me, TikTok is what a clock does, but apparently it's, it's some new thing. And, you know, people go on, uh, I guess, go on it or use it or however it works and become very famous, become celebrities for, for whatever reason. And, and, and so we're not any better than our ancestors when it comes to going down to these false gods. And, Revelation is a very powerful reminder, a very consistent reminder that all that, that, that the power the, behind all of these false gods is, is Satan, is the forces of darkness, is the kingdom of the beast, is apostate Babylon. 
All of those code words, all of those characters from the book of Revelation are all well represented in, in our culture, certainly here in America. Uh, indeed, I would, I would even maybe go so far as to say they're dominant, that they are the, the true gods of America. And, uh, and of course, many, many, many other cultures and nations around the world. So John does not want to close this book of Revelation without giving one more warning. One more warning about not bowing down, not worshiping the created things, but worshiping the Creator and the Creator only. All right, so worship is a big theme. Uh, Reward is a big theme. Notice verse 12, my reward is with me. Uh, I will give to everyone. Now, reward can, you know, in its original meaning, a reward could be good or bad. You know, sort of like the wages of sin is, is sort of a kind of a reward. Um, and it's here, you know, Jesus makes it very clear that there are consequences to the choices, to the way we live, to, to the way we worship, to, the, to the, you know, the, the, the decisions we make carry with them. I, you know, I, I, I was, somebody, you know, every once in a while you know, I, I'm, I'm reading a book or I'm, I'm listening to something and I'll come across a statement or something that, you know, to me is a very succinct way of expressing a personal point of view, and maybe I'll, I'll put it on Facebook or put it out there somewhere, just as kind of a, a short way of saying, you know, what I, what, 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 what I think about something. And I put something out not that long ago, and somebody responded to it in a very negative way and tried to, tried to draw me into a conversation that I'm just not going to have. I, I, I do not debate unbelievers on anything except Jesus Christ. You're not going to draw me into a conversation about anything else other than Jesus. He's the only one out. The only thing I'll talk to an unbeliever about is Jesus Christ. I'm I'm not going to argue about anything else because if you don't get Jesus right, it doesn't matter. None of the rest of it matters. And so uh, I I was just, I was, I was thinking about that and talking about that and, and the response I started to give and I didn't give it, but I said, you know what, if there was nothing after this world, if there was nothing after this life, if this life only was all that we had to deal with and worry about, you know, there's a lot of things I truly wouldn't even be bothered by or, or care about. Or, you know, I would be content to let people do whatever makes them happy, you know, as long as it doesn't, you know, hurt anybody else. You know, I wouldn't care. But because there is a consequence, because there is a reward for faithfulness and a reward for unfaithfulness, because there is a consequence to the choices that we make, we are compelled. You know, uh, I I was uh, thinking of what Paul said there, I think, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're probably going to get to this on one of the Sundays, but 
He said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, I seek to persuade men. In other words, Paul was saying there, knowing what's waiting, knowing the judgment that's going to come, every choice, every decision, God takes you. How many times in the book of Revelation are the books of life and the books mentioned? And the indication seems to be there that God is taking notice of every day, every aspect of our life. You know, whether, I don't know how that works. I, I don't know how, you know, kind of when I imagine it, you know, I sort of imagine, you know, kind of like when you see one of these security uh, cameras, you know, you see the, the person, you know, I, I just see my whole life is being recorded. And it, to me, it's even more than that because not only are my actions being recorded, but my thoughts, my words, my motives, uh, the whys as much as the whats. And this understanding that everything carries with it its own reward is a dominant theme in Revelation. And I know we didn't take a lot of time with that as we went through the book, but if you go back, you will see how many times it says, because they repented not, because they did this, because they did that, then this happened or that happened. Everything carries with it for good and for, and for bad, its own reward. And Christ and Christ himself is the one who, who determines that reward and, who's, and, and who, will, uh, who will give it out, who will, who will supply it. And so uh, I, I don't mean that we should live our lives with fear. We shouldn't live our lives afraid to step on a crack. We, you know, uh, God wants us to walk by faith. He wants us to walk with confidence and assurance. But I think it's something we need to remind ourselves of from time to time that everything carries with it a, on a positive side. On a positive side, we know that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. We know that uh, every sacrifice we've made, every, every service that we've rendered, Every act of compassion, every act of kindness, every act of generosity, every, everything we've ever done for the Lord has, is, has been faithfully noted, faithfully taken note of, and will be rewarded. God is, God is just and God is, God is fair and God will not let anything that was done for the glory of, of His Son go unrewarded. So there's a very positive message there. We have so much to look forward to if we live for Jesus Christ. So much value and worth to this life, to how we live it. We can turn literally any action we do into a service to God. Paul says, do all things as unto the Lord. Everything you do, let it be done as unto the Lord. You can turn you know, every little insignificant in your own mind uh, thing into a into something that could could render uh, or, or or bring about a great reward, and so we have much much to look forward to and much to enjoy and to look forward with with anticipation and excitement. But the other side is also true for those who are not in Christ. Those consequences are and those rewards are 
are catastrophic. So a life, uh, uh, our lives and the choices we make in them carry with them uh, the promise of reward. So we'll move uh, to the next thing. In verse 15 there, a number of times in the book of Revelation, John is given or notices a list of, of sins or a list of transgressions that are an indication of the total perversity and depravity and persistence of sin. And here at the end of the book, we are reminded again that the kingdom of God is not for everybody. The kingdom of God is not for uh, those who reject Jesus Christ. It's not for the sexually immoral. It's not for practitioners of witchcraft and sorcery. It's not for murderers. And remember what Jesus said about murder. Jesus said, if we hate a man without a cause, right? Anybody remember the Sermon on the Mount? To hate someone without a cause is murder. These, I mean, you know, we've, all year we've been dealing with the issue of bigotries and prejudices and, and injustices. And, you know, John makes it very clear here, the kingdom of God is not for these sorts. Idolatry we've covered. Those who love and practice a lie, the deceivers. How, how do you think, if we just took that one statement, the kingdom of God is not for whoever loves and practices a lie, and we applied that statement to the presidential debate, any presidential debate, would, would we feel comfortable? Would we feel comfortable? About, uh, about those who partake in those entering into the kingdom of God. The message is very clear. The kingdom of God is for righteousness. The kingdom of God is righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. For those who love sin, for those who love their sin, for those who rejoice in iniquity, for those who hate the truth, for those who love darkness, not light, for those who want to walk in their own path and do what seems right to them. The kingdom of God is not their destination. And, and rightfully so. For anyone who, no one who wants to live a sexually immoral life or an idolatrous life, or a life of deception, or a life of hate, would last five minutes in the kingdom of God. It's just, you know, there, there, there's just some people, for as much as we like to believe, I heard one of the candidates, I think it was, I think it was uh, Biden, I understand, I'm not, I, 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 I'm not taking any sides, I just, something he said just kind of struck me and, and, and kind of stuck with me in, in the debate. He said, you know, I just believe that Americans are good people. <laughs> and I know what he meant. He wasn't speaking theologically. He wasn't speaking doctrinally. But, you know, we live with this idea that people, 
no matter all the evidence we see on a daily basis, the people are good. Truth is, they're not. There's none good, none righteous. If they're not saved, if they're not born again, if their life, heart, mind have not been changed, they inherently, even though they may do good things and have good qualities, they inherently will eventually choose themselves over everything and everyone else. And so there must be some who are left outside the kingdom. Yeah, if, if you, good, good night. Yes, go ahead. If, if you could break down for me, uh, sexually immoral. Because I, I think there is a lot there, but. Well, and, and, you know, I guess from a biblical perspective, it would be uh, adultery would be at the top of the list. That's in the commandments. I shall not commit adultery. Uh, fornication would be there. Uh, certainly homosexuality would be there. Um, and then you kind of get off into some of the, uh, you know, the, the lust, uh, the pornographies, the, uh, you know, the, the, more, the more perverted uh, sexual desires and tastes that people seem to, to celebrate in. But I think if we look, I think, you know, from, from, from those, you know, I guess the, the main three there, Adultery and fornication, and uh, I think we, you know, every every form of sexual immorality would would derive from from that perspective. And so, now, go ahead. Finish, finish, finish your point, because I have another follow-up question. Well, all all I was going to say is that um, the standard, you know, when we call something immoral. We are, we are, we have in mind uh, a standard of morality or standard of what is good. An immoral thing is something that de- that deviates from the standard. And so, the ideal, the standard, the moral uh, ground of sexuality is marriage. So, if if we if you just if you just have been paying any attention at all. In the past generation, uh, you know that there's no human institution that has been attacked more than marriage. And so, uh, you know, biblically speaking, knowing, being intimate, being sexual with somebody is a covenant. To, it, it's almost like a sacrament. You know, it's the sacrament of marriage. And the thing about a sacrament is anytime we take that out of its covenant relationship, out of its covenant core, it becomes twisted and it becomes perverted and it becomes something that is unrecognizable for the intent for which it was originally given. Now, you you had mentioned in, in your response, you had mentioned fornication and adultery. How, how does... Fornication differs from adultery. Well, adultery is the betrayal of a covenant relationship. Fornication is partaking of a covenant privilege without the covenant relationship. So putting it, you know, just putting it in in terms, if you're married, you're an adulterer if you are sexually active with anyone other than the person 
you're married to. If you're not married and you're sexually active, you are a fornicator. You know, this leads to another question. Now, Jesus, I think in, in some, some place in Matthew, says that if, if, if a person looks at, whosoever looks at, at a person and lusts after them, have already committed adultery in his heart. How do we reconcile that with what you, the statement you just made regarding fornication, um, enjoying the covenant relationship without the benefit of the covenant? Yes. Well, if you're in a covenant relationship, if you are married, your eyes, your heart, your desires are to only be for the one that you're in covenant with. Uh, to, to have a desire for anyone else, if I remember the context, I know we're talking in the Sermon on the Mount here, I believe we're, 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 the context was about uh, marriage and about adultery, because if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, it's kind of a, a commentary on the Ten Commandments. Jesus kind of deals with the law of Israel in its spiritual form. And, and so when you think about a person in a covenant relationship and maybe, they're, uh, maybe they begin to get involved in, say, pornography, for an example, or maybe there's someone, uh, a neighbor, a co-worker, someone in the church that they begin to have feelings for, if they don't, if they don't uh, repent of that, if they don't, immediately reject that and confess it before God and, 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 and pray for the, not only the forgiveness but also the, the sanctification, the cleansing from that. Uh, it's only really a matter of time before that affection becomes and begins to interfere with the affection that they have for the one that they're actually married to. Uh, they begin, you know, it, it's, it's in, in the sense of the God's, our relationship with God, you know, a lot of times God calls his people adulterers or, or says that they've committed adultery because they've begun to have feelings and affections that were due to God alone. They've begun to have those feelings and affections for, for the world or for things that are not God. Um, and I think one of the things that we don't spend enough time on, quite honestly, uh, is sexual integrity in the church. You know, it's, it's not at all uncommon today for people in church, uh, even people to be allowed in pulpits or on worship teams who are living with someone, but they're not married, who are, you know, having children with somebody, that they're not married to, who are in some kind of relationship. And you know, we've sort of kind of lowered the bar. We've, we've, we've compromised on this issue overall as a church, and it's, it's cost us quite a bit in terms of the anointing and the effectiveness of our message. If we're not preaching to save people from sin, what, what are we preaching? And if you can't be delivered from sexual sin then you can't be delivered from any kind of sin. The same, 
The same God who delivers the alcoholic and the drug addict is the one who delivers the adulterer and the fornicator. Either we believe in the power of Christ to save completely, utterly, body, spirit, and soul, or we are just, uh, we are just enablers of, of immorality. I think I went off on a tangent there. That's probably wasn't what you were looking for, but you know, I get no, a little sorry. wound up sometimes. You're doing okay. Okay. I, you know, I get a little wound up on some of these. Um, uh, that's perfectly all right. Yeah. As, as long as we're staying is, within the word. Yeah. Our culture is so saturated with uh, immorality, sexual and otherwise, that I, I, I don't even know what a church would look like if it really if it really held true uh, to the uh, model of integrity as revealed in the scriptures when it comes to these things. So uh, I think we all got we we to be reminded that in God's eyes, and I think somebody asked me one time, why does God care? <laughs> if you created something for one purpose, and someone began to use it for a different purpose in a very negative way, you would care. You know, you would care. Uh, If you gave, you know, let's say you gave somebody, you know, $100 to go grocery shopping because they were hungry and didn't have any food in their house. And instead of taking that $100 and getting, you know, milk and eggs and bread... They took that $100 over to the casino and, and bet it all on, on a poker game and lost it, you would be upset because that was not the intended purpose for which you gave the gift. And, you know, sexuality is a gift from God, and he cares about how we use it. And if you look at the fallout, if you look at the sickness, if you look at the broken home, if you look at the children being raised without one, or in many cases, both parents, if you look at just the, the devastation it has economically, a woman raising a child, uh, or, or even a man raising a child without a, without a, a husband or wife, it, you know, it's not just sex. It has incredible consequences, not only for yourself, but keep in mind... I think I started this by somebody asking me, why does God care? God cares because this is, the, this is the means by which we produce life. When you engage in intimacy with somebody, you are passing on potentially the gift of life. And that life that's created is eternal. We look at that little baby, and I love babies, I, you know, uh, you know, dedicating them and, and, and all of it. It's all beautiful. But you hold that baby in your hands, at least for me. I don't know if it affects anybody else this way, but I, when I look at that baby, I don't just see a baby. I see a, a teenager. I see a grown adult. I see someone who's going to live a whole life and then... Live forever. 
that soul is never, ever going to perish. So think, why does God care? Because this is, this is, this is for keeps. This is eternity we're talking about. And, and when, you, when you treat it so disdainfully and so cavalierly, um, it's an insult to God. And not to mention, it's degrading and demeaning to yourself and to the other person. All right, so those that are outside the kingdom, are not worthy of the kingdom, would not accept the kingdom, would not be happy in the kingdom. Uh, you know, I've said it oftentimes, but I'll say it again here. Yeah, this idea of just, why don't God just let everybody in? Well, if he lets everybody in, then, then it will be no different than what we have now. Because what we have now is everybody doing what they want to do. All right? All right. All right. Though there are many reasons why people will be lost, there is good news, and the good news is there's only one reason to be saved. One reason needed. Whosoever will call upon the Lord will be saved. And Revelation gives us a beautiful picture of the saved, the bride of Christ, the church of Christ, the, the glory of that kingdom, the rulers and reigners along with Christ. Revelation gives us a wonderful portrait of their struggle, of their suffering, of how they overcome, of, of how Christ cares for them, how Christ uh, strengthens them, how Christ keeps them. And as we go through the whole book, we see both Jew and Gentile are, are part of this bride, are part of this kingdom. This is an a, a all-inclusive, uh, all-generational all cultural, all racial, uh, the, the, the great multitudes. And, and I know we see the church in sort of a minority. We see the church in sort of a, uh, in comparison to the world as a, uh, as a very small, very, very minor character. But, you know, the, the cumulative uh, generational role of the church uh, there, the kingdom of God will be billions upon billions upon billions of people redeemed. I, I, you know, I just, I just take a moment, just think about that. We, we tend to focus so much on those who are lost for good reasons. We don't want anyone to be lost. But let's take a moment and focus on how many are saved. What a great company of people, people from every language, tribe, people, tongue, nation, people who, you know, in, in, in their own, on their own terms, on their own merits, are no better than the people who are lost. We too, we too were like some of these. We were the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the liars and the thieves and the murderers and the, you know that, that that that's who we were or who we would have become if it was not for the redeeming power of the lamb of god and so we just take a moment 
to just celebrate and just rejoice in the saving power out of this mess, out of this world that is under the power of Satan. What, what a, you know, just, just think about the ego bruising that Satan is taking every single time someone that seems to be totally under his control is snatched away from his grasp by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. How, how this, this kingdom of death is being robbed of its victims, one soul at a time. What a, what a great, great uh, testimony to the redeeming power of Jesus Christ, that he is, he is able to save to the uttermost them that believe in him. And, and you know, for, for, for all of the bad news of Revelation, this time period, if we've, if, we've, if we've rightfully interpreted it, if we've applied these scriptures accurately and correctly, this period of time where Satan will be seemingly unstoppable, where the beast and all of his minions will seem to have total control, this will be the time of the greatest redeeming work, the greatest revival, the greatest salvation event in the history of the world. So I think it's, I think it's worth a hallelujah and a praise the Lord and a thank you, Jesus, just to understand even though things seem so dark and desperate, Christ is still saving, redeeming, delivering His people, the saints of God. And I think that's a, that's a beautiful thing to me. I, I rejoice in that. I really do. I, I wish more would get saved. I absolutely do. I wish it was 100%. But I tell you what, you, you know, if, if, God never, if God ever only saved one person, it would be a miracle beyond anything that we've ever seen. But the fact that he is saving them by the tens of millions is just a great testimony, a great testimony to the power of Jesus Christ. So we'll conclude uh, with one final uh, look at Jesus. What does Revelation tell us about Jesus. He, he is the central uh, figure. Remember how the book starts. It begins, the opening words of Revelation chapter 1 are the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is the central theme and character of the book of Revelation. And there is more that is told about Jesus Christ in this book, in his present and future roles, than in all of the rest of the Bible combined. A unique portrait of Christ is given in Revelation, a portrait very different in its emphasis than even from that which is given in the Gospels. Um, you know, the Gospels, for the most part, tell us the story of Jesus from his birth to his resurrection, uh, the time that he spent here on earth. And, and, you know, a couple of verses in those Gospels give us a little bit of glimpse of his preexistence in John chapter 1. 
and a glimpse, a promise of His future glory in the days to come. But the book of Revelation takes it to a whole different level. There, there he's, He is fully present in the moment in all of His glory, in all of His majesty, in all of His power. And there are, there are four distinct pictures or portraits that are given of Jesus in this book. In the first three chapters, he is the great high priest, the shepherd of the sheep. Those three chapters emphasize his intercessory ministry, his pastoral ministry. He's walking in the midst of the golden candlesticks. He is, he is looking out over his flock. He is correcting. He is instructing. He is comforting. He is strengthening. He is challenging. He is chastising. He is doing all of the things in real time. In real time. He's doing it as those churches are going through their battles and their struggles with persecution on the, on the outside and with compromise and corruption on the inside. And so that real-time ministry of Jesus, when we gather here tonight, even by this method of talking to each other over this phone line, Christ is present in our midst. I am a pastor, but he is the pastor. I am a shepherd, but he is the shepherd. And, and this is his church more so than it is even my church or the church of God's. And, and so his presence through his spirit, through his words, is what shepherds us, what keeps us, what protects us, what challenges us, and what corrects us. And, uh, and that present ministry of Christ is critical. It's important that we understand it, that we get it, and that we acknowledge him as the head of the church at all times. Not the Pope, not the general overseer, not uh, you know the, the, the prophet or the apostle, this or that, of this or that ministries, but Jesus Christ himself. The candlestick is always before him, and the stars are always in his right hand. He holds it up, and of course, you know, that's a comfort, but it's also, I think it's also a very great challenge to us. If, if Christ were to come to this meeting tonight, if Christ were to come to our meeting on Sunday, would he be pleased by what he hears, by what he sees? Would he be pleased by what is taught, what is sung, how we worship? Would he be? Would would we hear the words that Philadelphia heard? Would we hear the words that Smyrna heard? Well done, good job, hold on, hold fast. Or would he look at us like an Ephesus, like a Thyatira, like a Pergamos, like a Sardis, like a, a Laodicea? These thoughts may not be on your mind, but they're on mine. What would Christ think of his church today? 
So we keep that in our hearts and minds, knowing that he is as much a presence in our gatherings as any one of us is. Do I have any comments or questions on Christ as shepherd and as priest? The, 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 the only thought I, I, I have at times is this. If, if Christ were to put in an appearance, a physical appearance in our homes, in our churches, would, would it make a difference in how we worship? And would it make a difference in how we treat our loved ones in the homes? Ah, hmm. uh, you know, I don't know if I can answer that one honestly or not. I, that, that's why you have to search your heart for that one. Because um, the, 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 the answer that I come away with all the time is, okay, so he's not here physically, but he has promised to be with me always because I can see him. Am I treating the situation as if he's not here when he's very much here? Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's one that'll make, you, that'll make you pray a little longer tonight, I hope. <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe skip uh, the evening news tonight and, uh, and open your Bible and, and get before the Lord. It's, it's, it's a tough... You know, we, we're, we're, we're not really built... You know, there's something you have to teach, train, and discipline. That's why, hopefully, that's why you come to these Bible studies. Hopefully, that's why you support things like uh, Sunday school and, 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 and things like that. Because we, you know, the, if I were to say what one quality is, is more lacking in the modern church than in the early church, uh, to me, and I know there's many candidates here, but the one that stands out to me tonight is discipline. Just the discipline, the personal discipline of those who claim to be followers of Christ. Um, you, know, to, 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 you know, to paint with a very broad brush, which is not very fair, but, you know, how many millions? How many millions? Let me, I'm going to say this carefully. I think all of you know my heart. I think you know... Know my high regard and my boasting that I have in all of you, and I, I hope you keep that in mind. But my impression over these past few months is that there were many—I won't put a number on it—but there's just many who were sort of relieved, or happy, or 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 just you know you know, just sort of very accepting of, oh, I don't have to go to church anymore. And I realize that going to church is not what makes us Christians. It certainly is not. There's many, you know, in most churches, you know, there's more non-Christians if you really boil it down to it. But, But just the thought that we didn't have to continue to put that effort in. And I know many of them said, well, you know, we can't go to church, but we can, you know, we're going to do better here at home. We're going, to, we're going to have family devotions. We're going to have this and we're going to have that. And I think for a lot of them, that first couple of weeks, they probably did. But now, you know, six months later, do they still? Is, is Christ even an afterthought 
in the lives of his church today. Other than maybe tuning in to YouTube or to Facebook Live or to a phone call like this one, does Christ occupy any of your time throughout the rest of the week? I, I don't know all the answers to that. and I'm probably not fair, but you know, the, just the idea that uh, um, the discipline of serving, of learning, of loving, of ministering, of working for Christ has really been degraded over this over this period of time at least at least in my observation and that's strictly my observation i claim no divine insight or revelation to that anyone else have a comment or a question on Christ's role as the shepherd as the but, priest oh, as the intercessor pastor thinking of yes. brother, um, that brother's question about if Christ should visit your home this is how i'm looking at that thought. I'm, I'm looking at it from a relationship that you form with Christ. And the scripture that I would kind of go back to is the one that tells us that I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not high, but Christ who lives. And I live it by the faith of the Son of God who loved me. So I, I am thinking that that visitation, the physical visitation, and how we operate would come from the relationship that we have with Christ and, and the life that we live through the faith of the Son of God who, who loved us and gave himself for us. So that, that's my thinking in that direction there. So it, I'm thinking that we have to form, you know, the, the Apostle Paul tells us that we should... Um, we should examine ourselves. We also talk about dying daily. And, and yes. our, our relationship with Christ comes from the fact that we become crucified with him and his, his, his death and his burial and resurrection. So if we, are, if we are in that position, it shouldn't be a, a, I don't think that should be a problem if he, if he visits our house physically, recognizing yes. that he's, he's the, the, the Lord and, and the shepherd. I, I, that's my thought there. Amen. Amen, brother. That's, uh, that's well put. If You don't have to worry about him being in your home if he's already in your heart. And yeah, if he's opinion. in your heart, he'll be in your home. And if he's not in your heart, he can't be in your home. So, yes, you're on If he's in your heart, then if he's in your heart and he comes to your home, then he'll be welcome. Amen. In your home also. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will hear the voice and open the door, I will come in. And Amen. I will dine with them, and they with me. Christ will make his abode with us. All right. The, uh, the second portrait, beginning in chapter 4 through about chapter 16, is that of Christ as the Lamb of God. This, of course, speaks to Christ's redemptive work, his saving work. But it also speaks to the means by which he gains victory over sin, over death, over Satan himself. This is a bit of a lost teaching, a lost doctrine in many Pentecostal churches today. 
We're so used to the gospel of power, to the gospel of authority, that we, um, we often overlook that the one who had the most power and the most authority used that power and authority in, 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 in a way that's totally unexpected by laying down his life. You know, brother, you were just talking about being crucified with Christ. That, that call to emulate Christ's victory, to follow his path, to take up our cross and follow him, is not heard from very many pulpits today. But Revelation makes it clear that the only way we can defeat this world, the only way we can be delivered from this world is by not loving our life in this world, by being faithful unto death, by being willing to die as Christ died, to be willing to suffer as Christ suffered, not only physically, but of course spiritually as well. You cannot defeat the enemy by becoming like the enemy. You cannot, uh, you know, we, we, we've, we've long maintained, we've sort of had this idea as a movement that we could take worldly means, worldly methods, worldly power, somehow sanctify those things and turn them to the advantage of the kingdom of God. But Christ's path is a narrow path. It is not the way of the world. It is not the way that seems right to us. Christ calls on us to submit to the cross as He, the Lamb of God, submitted to the cross. He guarantees us victory, but it is a victory that is only achieved by dying. The only way to win is to lose. He who loses his life will save it. And we're very fortunate that here in America we are not yet called to put this victory into action in a literal way. But nevertheless, it remains the spiritual path. If we truly want to see life everlasting, if we truly want to be untouchable by sin, by death, by Satan himself, then we do have to crucify every aspect of worldliness, of the flesh, of the ambition, of the, the hope that we would have in this life. The Lamb triumphs over the beast by giving his life, by letting the darkness, letting death, letting Satan pour out all of their wrath and fury against him on the cross, taking it into his own self, and then expunging it, expiating it, and rising again. The path that Christ went is the path that all those who follow Christ must go. We are the little lambs who must follow the shepherd all the way to the sacrificial altar. Only by dying can we hope to live again. So we'll look at the last picture. The book of Revelation closes. So it opens with him as the high priest, the shepherd of the sheep. 
The middle section of Revelation details his victory as the Lamb of God. And then Revelation concludes with a portrait of Jesus Christ as King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Judge of the living and the dead, the omnipotent, sovereign creator and, and sustainer of all things. This is the ultimate destiny. This is the ultimate role that Christ will fulfill before his mission is complete. He came as the lamb. He serves now as the shepherd and high priest. But his destiny is to rule and reign over the living and the dead for all the kingdoms to be brought into subjection to him. He is Lord. This was the opening confession of the church. And this will be the final confession of all people. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess. Jesus Christ is Lord. And then death will be defeated. Life will triumph. God will be all in all. And He will reign forever and ever and ever. Do you have any uh, comments, thoughts, or questions here on Christ in His final picture in Revelation? Well, Jude puts it very well in one of the clauses, I think the last verse or so, it says, to the holy wise God our Savior, to in be glory, majesty, dominion, and power. The only wise Amen. God our Savior. I think, I think that's how I'm seeing that tonight, as we talk, think about him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Thank the Lord. Amen. <clears throat> The concluding statement of Revelation, I think, is one in which we can all agree on tonight. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. All Amen. Right. That is the book of Revelation. Do I have any final comments? Any Anything we did not get to that uh, you wanted to... Uh, to get in before we close the book on it? All right, praise God. I really enjoyed this, this book, enjoyed this Bible study. I've, I've taught Revelation many times, but I really, uh, even though we couldn't all be together and, and, and we're hopeful that we'll be able to do that soon, uh, I really just found it to be a very rich and rewarding Bible study, specifically <clears throat> concerning Jesus and understanding His true nature. We all... We'll pick up the theme of who is Jesus next week. We'll come back and start uh, kind of reviewing some of the things we covered throughout this year. We've only, we've only got a handful of classes left in 2020. So I want you to start thinking even now about what you'd, you'd like to study in 2021. I'm hopeful that by, uh, by January we will be able to come back to meeting in person on Wednesday nights. I, I, I'm really, of course, we'll always have the option of, of calling in. I know not everyone will be able to come, but uh, I, I miss having you here in front of me. I miss the back and forth, and I'm hopeful we'll be able to get back to that in the new year. God bless you all. We will uh, speak with you again next Wednesday night at 745. Until then... 
Have a great rest of your week. This has been a production of the Lighthouse Church of God. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. You are welcome to join us for service every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information or to support our ministry, visit our website at www.lhcogfl.org. Or if you're in the Broward County area, we would love for you to visit our church located at 1890 Southwest 31st Avenue, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, 33312. God bless you. Until next time, this is the Lighthouse Church of God, lighting the way through the storms of life.